meeting where we're, we're, you're with some people that can flat pray. And you're going, you know what? I don't sound that good. And sometimes we approach our own personal prayer life in a similar way. How do I sound more spiritual? How, how do I get God's attention? Today in our fulfilled study, there might be somewhat of a welcomed pause in the apocalyptic language and the futuristic themes and Daniel belts out from the depths of his being a heartfelt moving prayer for his people and for God to move in his own life. And looking at this beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter 9 verses 1 through 19 today, we get the privilege of noting how to pray from your heart. That's what we desire, isn't it? To talk to God from deep within. And this morning as we begin reading through this powerful passage, I'm going to read the first two verses and as we learn about how to pray from your heart, the first thing on your outline, number one, is simply this, involves that we keep the right focus. Sometimes uh, what trips us up in our praying is our focus is off. It's on ourselves or it's on things that aren't God-honoring. But it, prayer from the heart keeps the right focus. In verse 1 and 2, we find these words in Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Do you understand what, what's going on here? Daniel, who's been seeing incredible visions from the Lord, is now thinking through what all he has seen. And you might, if you were seeing such incredible visions from the Lord, someone might put their hand on you and say, hey, Daniel, take it easy. Take a vacation. Relax. You're, you're being used of God. You're seeing so many great things, but don't take this all so seriously. Do you know what Daniel does? Is he spends time in the Word of God, pouring over what these visions might mean. Some of you might do your history a little bit and say, well, Daniel didn't have a Bible. How did he get in the Word of God? It's interesting enough, as you remember, Daniel, now in his 80s, was deported as a teenager from Jerusalem to Babylon and has been there serving his entire adult life. And they took with them their Hebrew traditions, but most importantly, they took with them what, what scrolls they had of the then-gathered Old Testament. Likely he had a copy of the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament, and they had some writings of some of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he must have had a particular penchant for Jeremiah because verse 2 tells us he was reading Jeremiah. Well, note what he read in the book of Jeremiah. He's reading about himself. Now, unbeknownst to him, he's reading about the time where God's chosen people would, have, would be deported to Babylon. Maybe he read in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29. It says this, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to the place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Many of you know verse 11. 
But did you know that verse 10 is a verse that prophesies what happened in the book of Daniel? Daniel's reading this, and his, pro- his eyes probably bugged out, and he's doing the math here, and he's saying, what? God has said in his word that we're only going to be in Babylon 70 years. And then God said that I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. And so this touched Daniel deeply, and it moved him. And in verse 3, it says right after that, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. This understanding of God's word moved him to praying. And it gives us the first principle under number one for keeping the right focus, and that's number one, and that's A, to make sure that we are scripture driven. You know, if you're having a hard time in your prayer life, the only advice I can give you, uh, or, or the best advice, is to be a man or a woman of the Scripture. Because it's, it's God's Word that infuses life in our prayer life. And we should actually pray over the Scriptures. Maybe you found yourself trying to pray and you toss up a few words for this person you're concerned about or this need or this issue, and then our minds start wondering extremely quickly. But if you will take the Word of God with you and read through it slowly and pause over phrases and words and verses and lift up prayers about your life and the life of your church and needs in our world and needs in your family, you can pray the Scriptures over those things and you'll begin to see an amazing transformation happen as God renews your focus. Uh, Something else we see uh, in this passage about keeping the right focus is B, that the right focus is mindful of who you're talking to. Do you ever forget who you're talking to? And maybe you've spoken disrespectfully to someone that may be a parent or maybe a a person of authority that you should speak differently to. You know, I I found this funny one, it was one Wednesday night. Now, people have, have asked me through the years, hey, what do I, how do I address you? And I say, call me whatever you like. Some people call me Cliff, others call me other things, but A lot of times it's generational what people will call their pastor. And I was down at the uh, Wednesday night supper, and there was an older gentleman there. And he said, hello, pastor, how are you? I said, hey, good to see you. And then there was a younger man sitting next to me. He looked at me and said, hey, Cliff, how's it going? I said, hey, good to see you. The older gentleman looked at the younger gentleman and said, with piercing eyes, he said, his name is Pastor. I was like, well, you know, whatever he wants to call me is fine. That's not a big deal. And he goes, you should call him. I said, you know what? I'll let you two duke out what to call me while I go greet other people. Uh, It was was a really interesting history lesson in uh, how to speak to one another. But when we're praying, it should never cross our minds that we're talking just to someone in thin air up there. And we should never forget the character of the person that we're addressing. Daniel does that beautifully in this prayer, and he, li- he points out several different traits of who God is. The first one, number one under B, is the word awesome. In verse four, it says, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. He, he describes God as the awesome one, a word meaning great in size and grandeur. It's a word that describes God as one that is so hard. He's beyond description. That he is awe-stunning. He, he leaves us speechless by his greatness. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 
47, verse 2. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. Another trait about God that we must remember when we're praying is number 2 under B, and that's the word righteous. In verse 7, Daniel simply comes out with it and says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. There's a huge difference between us and God, Daniel says is that he is filled with righteousness and we're filled with unrighteousness. Another trait about God that Daniel brings up several times in this beautiful prayer is, is three under the letter B, and that's the word forgiving. You know, one of the things I've noticed in, about God's forgiveness is that if we don't remember that he's forgiving, prayer becomes something we do a lot less of. Oftentimes our own guilt, whether it's self-imposed or indeed God-induced. It has a terrible effect on our desire to talk to God. But if you're convinced that God will forgive you, you belong to Him, and you know that He loves you, that He's got a plan for your life, you are more apt to pray to Him. And Daniel in verse 9 says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we've rebelled against Him. You think about that. The people in your life that you have hurt and offended, if you know that you have crossed them one too many times, you're hesitant to pick up the phone. If you know that they have an awful temper and will respond to you poorly, you just assume avoid the drama and the difficult conversation. But if you know that they are forgiving, just like the, the living God is. The scripture tells us in Micah 7, 18 that he delights to show mercy. It doesn't mean we can take him lightly because he delights to show mercy, but that's the kind of relationship he has with us, that desire for us to be restored to him. So we have to be mindful of who we're talking to. See, another way to keep focused on God during prayer and to pray from your heart is see that we might be eager for God's glory. I noticed as I read through this prayer several times this week that he's very intentional about who should be the center of attention. Uh, first of all, look in verse 15. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day. God made for himself a name, he says. And then in verse 17, Now, O Lord our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servants. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. He's saying, Lord, do everything that I ask for your sake. You've made a name for yourself, God, so let it be for your sake. I was reading about the composer, the famed ancient composer J.S. Bach. And it was said before he would begin one of his anthems writing, he would write the letters J.J. at the top of the sheet. And then he would write the letters S.D.G. at the bottom of the sheet. And they were both stood for Latin terms. The J.J. stood for Jesu Juven, which means Jesus help me. As he's beginning his effort at his job, which was composition, he said, Jesus, help me. And then at the end, he would spell out the Latin words, solio de gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. And I thought to myself, what an incredible way to begin each day. Jesus, help me. And at the end of every day, Lord, to God be the glory. And so that focus, that eager desire for the glory of God in our prayer life is something we mustn't take lightly. 
Well, a second principle we see in this passage about how to pray from our heart is number two, and that's to develop the right attitude. And not only should we have the right focus, but the right attitude. Sometimes unhealthy or, or sinful attitudes creep into our prayer lives and then almost keep us from fervency in that area. And the first one, A, under number two, is to be aware of our need. We read verse three a moment ago, and when he learns that 70 years are almost done, he put himself before God in sackcloth, in ashes, in fasting. In other words, he is urgently calling upon God because he realized how desperately he needed the Lord. I, I, was, I remember hearing a story by Professor Howard Hendricks from Dallas Theological Seminary, and a seminary student who was, getting, who was in his last year of study went to his office and said, Hey, Dr. Hendricks, I need you to pray for me because I'm graduating and I need a wife. You know, that's a strange request. We don't have that kind of department here where we get a wife for you. What are you saying? He goes, well, I need a wife. I'm not married, and churches won't look at me probably if I'm not married, so I just, I need a wife. And he said, listen, you don't understand marriage. It's not, uh, it's not just a transaction, someone you get to just assist you. It's not just, he said the powerful phrase, he goes, it's not finding someone you can live with. It's finding someone with whom you cannot live without. <laughs> he said, so if you come back to see me sometime, Having found someone, I want you to tell me that you need her, that you are incomplete without her. And then, then maybe we'll talk. So the, the guy was a little bit shocked by the, uh, the affirmations of the professor. And then about six months later, not long before graduation, he comes in smiling and beaming. And he says, hey, I found someone. God's given me someone. We're going to get married. And he said, great. And he, he said, and Doc, I need her. <laughs> It's a very powerful way to enter into the marital relationship with a great sense of need, not with a sense of, hey, I guess we should get married. I guess this is the next natural progression. I guess you'll do, but I need you. Oftentimes in our prayer life, we're the same way. I'm a Christian. I guess I should pray. That's the natural step of pro progression for me as a believer. I'm supposed to talk to God up there until let's get it done. No. A Christian begins with the sense that David had in Psalm 86, verse one where he said, I am poor and needy. Hear my cry. As he said the same thing in Psalm chapter 40, verse 17. May the Lord think of me, for I am poor and I am needy. A, a great sense of need is what, is what drives an authentic prayer life. <clears throat> also, B, under number two, another attitude. Frankly, I'm going to give B and C together because they sort of go hand in hand. So on the screen, if you can put B and C up together, B is painfully honest, and C is burden for others. I'm going to read verses uh, 4 through 6 for a moment to catch the flow of what's going on. Again, we've already read verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We've been wicked and have rebelled. We've turned away from your commands and laws. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to the kings and our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. It's interesting how he gives a we prayer. Uh, two things are going on here. Daniel realizes his sinfulness and the sinfulness of the people of Israel that brought them to this place. It led them to this moment. They wouldn't give up their idols, and God had warned them. They would not repent. You're going to be exiled if you don't repent, and they didn't. And here he is at the end of the journey, and he's praying for his people. He includes himself, and it's a, it's a painfully honest moment, but he's also burdened for others. You know, 
we have to ha- have the courage to come clean in our prayer life and not pretend like we do with one another. If someone asks you how you're doing, you say you're doing fine. If someone who knows you, loves you, and cares for you, not in a hallway passing moment, looks you in the eye and says, hey, how are you really doing? Do you know what you're tempted to do is still say, fine. And someone who you can trust that you've known for years, if they say, listen, how's it really going? Well, you try to find the courage to say, you know, I have some struggles. Could you pray for me about this? But you know what you'd rather do? I'm fine. Everything's great. But for us to admit weakness, but for us to admit especially error, fault, frailty, is a difficult thing. We've got to learn to have the courage to do that in our relationships, but most importantly, in our relationship with God. And David, Daniel comes clean and says, I have sinned, we have sinned. And as he's praying, much like the Lord's Prayer that we looked at this past summer about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your kingdom Uh, Your will be done. Then he says, give us. He was praying for others. He was burdened for others in the model prayer. And David says that, Daniel says the same thing. We have sinned. And so we must learn to be painfully honest before the Lord to realize that nothing in creation is hidden from God's side. He knows it anyway. And we get a restoration in our relationship with him when we come clean and shoot straight before him. But also, true, authentic prayer from your heart leads us to be moved and burdened for others in the journey with us. Something else we note in Daniel's prayer that could strengthen our own prayer life is D, another right attitude, and that's this, accepting of God's ways. I like what Daniel does uh, in around verse 10 through 14. He says, first of all, in verse 10, We've not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we've sinned against you. You might remember in the book of the law in the Old Testament, there was a list of curses and blessings. And blessings follow those who obey God and curses, so to speak, follow those who disobey. Oftentimes, our prayer life, we spend so much energy reconciling our disappointment and anger at God and resentment for how our life has turned out. And I, in one sense, there's not anything wrong with that, because if you are angry, if you are resentful at how your life has turned out, the best thing you can ever do is to pray about it. Don't water it and fertilize it and let it fester and grow in your heart. Bring it out and give it to the Lord. But sometimes we get tripped up even in that journey because we never release it to him and accept what God has brought our way in terms of consequences. There tends to be a continued battle in our heart against God. But you see Daniel saying, Lord, you've given to us what you said you would, and we accept that today. We realize that you've been in the right, we've been in the wrong, We humble ourselves and accept that before you. And learning to accept the sovereign hand of God, even that which we don't understand, strengthens our prayer life, and it gives us the the freedom to call humbly upon his name. I've always been touched by verse 18, and something else that Daniel shows as an attitude that we should develop in our prayer life is E, 
and that's that we should be spiritually unassuming. That we should have a lack of spiritual entitlement. Verse 18, it says, Give ear, O God, and hear. Open the eyes, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. Look at the last part. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your mercy. <laughs> you know what he's saying? Lord, everything we're asking of you, we don't deserve. We're not entitled to things, Lord, and so we realize that whatever we ask of you will be by your own favor. I had an interesting experience uh, several months ago, and it was, it's unusual because the people that our church has the privilege of serving at the Christian Care Center are usually overwhelm, overwhelm us with gratitude. A thankful, grateful group of people that we love serving day in and day out. As my wife and I were walking, she to the women's center and me to the men's center to teach a Bible study, there was a gentleman that was knocking on the door of the women's care center, not a, a sight we like to see around here. And I called out to him and said, sir, sir, may I help you? And he came walking to me and said, yes, sir, I am hungry and I need some food. And it, the benevolence house was not open at that hour. And I said, okay, well, there, right at that building next door, I said, at, at, at 5 o'clock tonight, we do a, a feeding every evening, and lots of people from the community come, and it's a great time. And he goes, I can't eat there. And, I, and this is also an odd thing, because it, they have really good food there. I've served food there before, and I, I almost ruined my dinner, it just because it looks so good. And he goes, and I said, excuse me? He goes, I, I, I thought he may have pitched a fit and was on discipline and not allowed to go back. He goes, no. He goes, I do not like their food. And I said, what? He goes, no, it doesn't taste good to me. And so I was just wanting to see if maybe they had some better food there at the women's show. And I'm going, that's a sneaky way to get in the girl's place. And I said, uh, well, sir, you're not allowed to go over there. And I would reconsider because they have very good food. And he said to me, I can't eat that stuff. And I said, well, we'd love to help you at our church. And if you would like uh, you know, some groceries for you to cook your own meal, uh, you can go tomorrow morning to our Benevolence Care Center. And then I said, but outside of that, we're not able to do anything else for you, sir. And I walked away, and he walked his way, and I began thinking, what would he like us to do? Get his favorite meals and prepare them with the spices that just that he likes himself? You know, there, there, there was an unusual attitude that we don't see a lot around here, and that was a sense of entitlement. And, and oftentimes in our own life, spiritually, we develop the same attitude. Lord, I don't like this but I want this. And I'm asking you, Lord, I made myself disciplined enough to pray about it. The least you could do is follow through with my request. And we end up angry at God because maybe God doesn't answer us how we want or when we want or in the way that we asked of him. And oftentimes there's anger. Do you see any of that in Daniel? He says, we don't make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. In other words, Lord, I don't even deserve to utter these words before you. It's your mercy as to why I ask. And finally, F, another attitude that can help us as we develop it to pray from your heart is, is F, and that's to be rightly fervent. Look at the passion in Daniel's words in verse 19. He says, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act for your sake, O my God. Do not delay. I, I was convicted this week as I looked at verse 19 about how there is sometimes a lack of zeal in my request before God. 
I think sometimes prayer gets too familiar, too common for us, and we just mumble something and just la, 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 la. And God reminded me of how Jesus was earnestly praying in the garden and how Peter, uh, when Peter was in prison, the church, it says in Acts 12, I've earnestly prayed for his release. And here's the thing, we're not at peace in this world. We are at war because we're told we're in a spiritual battle. In Ephesians 6, and we're to wear the full armor of God, there, there should be an urgency because we're at war. People need Jesus. We are weak. We could fall without his grace at any moment. And there are just untold millions around the world that haven't even heard the gospel, and our prayers are limp. As if we're calling the butler in heaven to give us more comforts to pad our dens rather than urgently calling on his name like Daniel did. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, act. There was a fervency. And it's not like more. Jesus told us we're not heard because of our antics, because of our many words and how powerful we can phrase things. But that doesn't negate the fact that there should be a fervency, an urgency, a zeal in our prayers today. Well, Daniel's given us some insight about how to call upon the name, the name of the Lord from our heart. And today we have a, a great privilege in just a moment of, of sharing together the real core of our faith in the Lord's Supper. And, and we're going to enter into a time of prayer as we bow together for a moment and, and enter into a time of response. And as we are bowed before the Lord today, the scripture tells us that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And maybe you've never entered into that place today and we're going to have a time for you to respond and rather than have our, our time of standing up like we do today we're going to just remain seated in prayer and as Stephen sings and maybe you want to sing along as well but be a, a, also a great time to just prayerfully search your heart and ask God to search you today as we prepare our hearts those of you who are believers for the Lord's Supper and enter into a time of response as we wait before him but if you're